0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 7, verse 17 through 8, and verse 5. Genesis 7, verse 17. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lift up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high, heel, high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth, only Noah, those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. The waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. The waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. O Lord, help us as we ride out the storm of our life and know that you have saved us from a great judgment. Help us to prevail in faith even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are moments in our lives when we wonder, how long is this storm going to last? Like Noah on the ark. For Noah was remembered while riding out the storm. It was at a certain moment, as we read in Genesis 8-1, 150 days after the waters prevailed on the earth. Then God remembered Noah. As we saw last week, Noah had been shut in on the Ark of Salvation. God shut him in, him and his family. And then as it says in verse 18 of chapter 7, the Ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And then verse 23, only Noah and those who were with him in the Ark remained alive. It was an Ark of Salvation, But it was also an arc of seclusion, of waiting inside, bound inside with all the smells of a menagerie of animals. As Atkinson puts it, quote, life for Noah was not a luxury cruise. Shut up far too long in the dark, doubtless, smelly, not to say unhygienic sepulcher, Noah might well have despaired for his life, unquote. Sometimes we do expect a luxury cruise cruise, don't we? How long will this last, he says. I traveled to Europe in eighth grade. I had the rare privilege of going on a luxury cruise. I don't know how my father swung that. But he went over with my mother and me on the SS Raffaello, and that was like going on a cruise ship. Beautiful. Three stacks. Smooth sailing, great food. We came back on the S.S. Colombo. That was more like the Ark. I I felt like that one had gone around the Horn of Africa a few too many times, you know, like a, a freighter ship. And it was rocky, oh, all kinds of mal de mer. And oh, boy, I was wondering, how long is this going to last? And that's the way we feel in life sometimes how long will this spell of unemployment last? We're confident of our ultimate salvation through Jesus Christ. We are believers. We are on the ark of salvation, Christ's church. We have trusted in Christ. His shed blood poured out for our sins has sealed us in. We have security in that. But we wonder, while we're here on this journey of salvation, will we get a job? Talked to a Christian friend who, many years ago, it was more than a year that he was unemployed with a wife and a child. And it was a long time. He'd pick up the phone and he'd get busy signals. You know, back in the day, you got a busy signal. Now you just get sent to voicemail, and that's no better because they don't return your calls. The point I'm saying here is that he was at the end. He was tough, but God delivered him. It might be not so much, too much water, but a little dryness in the relationship I'm in or a dryness of relationship period. I might be dry inside the Ark of Christ's salvation, but I wasn't really looking for arid relationships. I wasn't looking for unfriendliness. And I wasn't looking for no relationships. And I'm not just talking about romance, though it can include that. What I'm talking about is meaningful relationship, being remembered, as God remembered Noah, being remembered on the horizontal plane, not merely getting information exchange. It's what Martin Buber, a Jewish philosopher, called the I and thou relationship, which we sorely lack in modern society, I quote concerning his work, when two people actively and authentically engage each other in the here and now, and truly show up to one another. In this encounter, a new relational dimension that Buber termed the between became manifest. The between is a thing in itself between the I and the thou. It involves mutuality, directness, presentness, intensity, inclusion. Inclusion, which is a heightened form of empathy. It's a far cry from the now familiar scene of a group of friends sitting around a table at a restaurant, all gazing into their smartphones. Unquote. I and thou relationships with people can be sparked by having an I-and-thou relationship with our Creator. For when things are right there, when we are justified and have a standing before God, as Noah did, and as we have a walk with God, as Noah did, it sets us free. We are loosened up. Our eternal destiny is sure. We don't have to be desperately seeking validation all the time. I have to work on that one. But we have this idea that it's well with my soul. Peace like a river has come and so I can afford to be open with people. God remembered Noah. And as we consider this, today, mutuality, directness, presentness, intensity, they're not values that are lifted up today. If you're too direct, you're intrusive or meddling. If you are too present, you are uh, disarmed with sardonic wit-, wit because somebody doesn't want to get too close. They want to hide their feelings. They don't want to be too vulnerable. And we devalue intensity in relationship ever since cool as a cucumber John F. Kennedy Defeated sweaty Richard M. Nixon in the 1960 presidential election. Intensity is viewed as scary today. Don't get my space. But the Bible is all about God getting into our space. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Christ's church is about fellow Christians getting into our personal space, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. When you exhort someone, you're getting in their space, okay? You're exhorting about something, right? Exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, Hebrews 10.25, even in Romans 1.11, Paul was about to write the most profound of his epistles, one of the, the greatest letter ever written in human history, a word from God. He's about to get into it, and here in chapter 1, verse 11, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. That's relationship. He's about to give them the biggest gift of doctrine and love that they could ever get. And yet he longs to see them. He wants an I-thou relationship with them. Which brings us back to 8.1. Then God remembered Noah. And as you look at the overall structure of the sermon in that Chiastic symbol there one of our attenders to here yeah, that's a chiasm yeah I had to look it up yeah that is a chiasm basically you got these paired off features a corresponds to a prime down at the bottom b with b prime and what we read today was that the flood covered it's covered for 150 days over the mountains Then E prime is that the flood recedes 150 days and the mountains appear. And then right in the middle, it all leads up to 81A. It's in the structure of the text that we should focus on this today. And so we consider first the rising and raining waters of judgment, chapter 7, 17 to 24. Remembered, chapter 8, verse 1, and restrained rain and receding waters chapter 8 verses 1 through 5 so first rising and raining waters of judgment chapter 7 17 through 24 it's in the midst of the water that we do our waiting there is much going wrong in our world and we are safe and secure while we wait The water was breaking loose from above and below, and Noah and his family were waiting in the ark. All the fountains of the great deep had opened up. The windows of heaven were opened. The flood was on the earth 40 days. The waters prevailed, it says in verse 18. All the hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. That means... 23 feet above the highest mountain peak, that's how high the water was. Young earth scholars have suggested that the mountains had not fully risen to their full height because of the tectonic plate movements not being complete at this point. And so we see in verse 21 the effects of it all. All flesh that moved on the earth, all that was on the dry land died. Verse 23... He destroyed all living things. They were destroyed from the earth. These waters were rising and they were raining, verse 24, and the waters prevailed. You you couldn't tread water long enough is the basic idea here. You're not escaping this. And man's encounter with the water here is one of judgment, upon the corrupt and violent world that man had produced after the fall of humanity. As we read in 6.11, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. It is this decisive judgment of the wicked that makes God's grace to Noah and his family out to be more than sentimentality. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but we understand that in the context of judgment, which should bring us to tears. As Jesus wept over Jerusalem, we should weep over a dying world. This judgment is what makes Noah finding grace in the eyes of the Lord more than a nice Bible story where play school makes its millions of dollars producing plastic arcs for the nurseries of America. There's something really sobering about the flood. God's grace is a miracle of deliverance. And that judgment removes all sentimentality from salvation and drains grace of any sense that God is a doddering do-nothing up in the heavens who just lets people get away with anything. For the decisive judgment here is breathtaking. There is no escape for us. If we remain among the wicked at the last day, Romans 2 and verse 3. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing such things, he's talking about the Jews judging the Gentiles, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God. Do you think you're off the hook? You good religious person? Uh-uh. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We treasure up for ourselves a flood of God's wrath, not a watery drowning at the last day, but fiery destruction if our hard and impenitent hearts refuse the opportunity to come to Christ. Come to Christ today. Come and believe upon him for your salvation and he will deliver you and we see of this working as the spirit works in our hearts it reminds us of what happens in Genesis 1 2 the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters this is preparatory to the separation of the waters Those above the firmament and those under the firmament. It's the work of the breath of God, the wind of God, the third person of the Trinity. And now here in the flood, that order is undone. The waters rage over the whole earth. The waters come up from beneath and come down from above. And the sea in general in the Bible functions like this. It's a place where you need to be rescued from it, like the Israelites going up against the Red Sea when the Egyptians are chasing them. It's like those disciples in the boat, in the fishing boat. And by his word of rebuke, when he is wakened, he stills both the wind, but he also stills the waves. And those waves are resistant to being stilled, they just don't calm down like that, but he does it in a moment. It is a miracle. And so all of this is according to God, as we have read in Psalm 93. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up, but God is mighty. He is in charge. The Lord on high is mighty. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood, and the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Now, as we consider this, as we consider this judgment, which is truly just and right. We remember that this judgment is the prelude to a new time of God's grace and renewal of creation. We go to 8.1 where we have the phrase remembered. Noah was remembered. First, God remembers the man who walked with God and then remembered also his family his wife, his sons, his sons' wives, all believed as they came aboard the ark. And now 150 days later, God remembered. It's that Hebrew word zakar, which combines the idea of God's faithful love and God's timely intervention. The love is ongoing, but now he applies it in a marvelous way. God's remembering always implies his movement toward the object of his memory. He is moving toward us in covenant love as God did toward Lot. When we read in Genesis 19 and verse 29, and it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that's Sodom and Gomorrah, that God remembered Abraham. He remembered Abraham out of the midst of the overflow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. He remembered Lot because of Abraham. He had a covenant relationship with this family. And Lot too believed, as we learn in Second 2 Peter 2, seven. for he was righteous. We remember that same movement of God toward his people. Exodus 2 and verse 23, page 51, if you're looking there. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered Zakar, his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God acknowledged them. That acknowledgement is what I'm talking about when I say an I-thou relationship. He doesn't just send in the the brigades to rescue. No, he is in relation with his bereaved and hurting people. It is an acknowledgement. He remembers his enslaved people. He remembers his trapped people at the Red Sea. He remembers... His people who are about to get consumed in Sodom and Gomorrah. As Kidner writes, quoting Childs, quote, God's remembering always implies his movement towards the object of his memory, unquote. It's not merely cognitive, like, oops, oh, now where's Noah? I I thought he was out there somewhere on that big ocean. No, it's theological. It's loving. I'm going for that guy. It's not questioning his omniscience in any way. It's him going toward to rescue. And to rescue, because to rescue this man, to get him off the ark, is to then continue the line with his sons toward Christ, the snake crusher who would be born of that line. So God is, coming, God is coming to us personally in Christ. And it has those aspects of mutuality, directness, presentness, and intensity of which I spoke earlier. We see this in Mary when she has met with the angel Gabriel. She's going to her cousin Elizabeth. And we read in 154 of Luke, he has helped his servant Israel. This is her magnificat. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. After those silent years before the New Testament, at that time where there was a sort of a quieting of divine revelation, now he has remembered his people. And he has come. And this involves mutuality. The angel speaks to Mary. In the previous verse, and then Mary speaks to the angel. So how is this going to be, seeing that I'm in a virgin? You can talk to God. Did you know that? You get to talk to God. He talks to you in his word, and you get to talk to him. There is mutuality. That doesn't negate his sovereignty. It doesn't make him any less God. But it is a reminder that we have our flesh in heaven as we read in the Heidelberg Catechism. How does Christ's ascension into heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven before his father. Second, we have our flesh in heaven. See, Christ having come down in space and time incarnation has made mutuality between God and his redeemed the language of relationship with the eternal. John Calvin always loved to talk about the condescension of God in the second person of the Trinity. And he is no less accessible to us now than then. For Jesus said, I will send you I pray, the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. John 14, 16. The helper, a paraclete coming alongside of you, called alongside, parallel to you. He is with you. He is in I-thou relationship with you so that you may even know a presentness, an intensity of relation with the living God. Every good gift of relational joy that we have vertically is then to be carried on horizontally. As we pass on the blessing, the between becomes manifest between husbands and wives. The between becomes manifest in the body of Christ. Marriage is not the only intimacy of the body of Christ. It is a great gift when it does happen, but there is great intimacy and closeness for brothers with brothers and sisters with brothers and with us all here as we worship together, we can be present for one another. And evangelistically, the soccer camp is simply a way that we are present with our community. We move toward them this week. And when you give a snack to the soccer camp, signing up in the lobby, you are moving toward the staff as they move toward the children when you put your offering in the plate you're providing the resources for that movement outward to happen And we thank the sisters and brothers in iowa who still move toward us and give generously that this camp can happen so that the world just this little part of the world can hear of jesus and his love And so, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 8, restrained rain and receding waters. Here on the other side of the remembering is God's fulfillment in space and time of that remembering. He moves toward his people, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. Now, I really think that's a supernatural wind. I really think that's the Holy Spirit, personally. So, what is a wind supposed to do with a worldwide flood? Okay? You're just blowing the waters around from what would become someday India to what would become someday China. You're just blowing you know, Mexican water up to the United States of America. It, it doesn't work. This is God moving in. This is God changing things. It's the wind. It's the Holy Spirit blowing just as we see in verse number 21 and 22 of Exodus 14. When they're up there against the Red Sea, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land. Indeed, God provided a route for the Exodus out of Egyptian slavery into a new life. This wind is the Holy Spirit's presence. His Ruach powerfully pushing back and suppressing the waters so that they return to their places. And we see the fountains of the deep, verse 2. The wind is in verse 1. And the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually. And the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat, no longer floating On the waters a new stability comes to this ark an anticipation of the day when they would step out of the ark onto terra firma and accompanying that they have a point of orientation the peaks of the mountain they're stable and they also can see the lay of the land now we're no longer cast abroad you know when you get saved you get stability in your life you get perspective where am I at in this grand scheme of things what is my place here and you also get anticipation what am I going to do when I get off because now I can see we've landed the Holy Spirit does that to us it makes us alive verse 4 and 5 of Ephesians 2 God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You have been saved. You have a stability in Jesus Christ. In Romans 8, 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And you get the fruit of the spirit. One of our guests was counting off which fruit of the Spirit are we on to? Oh, it's kindness today. Galatians 5.22. Boy, have we been edified by the Holy Spirit of God. And then the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12.7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And so God, having gifted his church, has blessed his church today. God remembers you today. He is moving toward you in a probing, sanctifying relationship of love. And when you step off the ark, you don't get out of the church. The church is you as you go forth into the world. And then you always return to the corporate church gathered so that you may have your oil pots filled. That's what those virgins were neglecting to do. They weren't getting their oil pots filled. And I said last week, and I want to repeat it, that the spirit and word are always linked together in our Reformed theology. So you need, your, you need the, the, the spirit to be refilled in your heart through the preaching of your word, God's word, and the reading of God's word, so that you may be filled, as it says in Ephesians 5:18, and do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This spirit is yours just as surely as it blew over the faces of the deep after God remembered Noah. So what about us? Does he remember us? Yes, Jesus has said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He has remembered you. Today is the day of salvation. Believe upon him and be remembered knowing that you are in close relationship with your God and knowing that he gives you relationships here for building you up in the body of Christ. And God is spreading his gospel as we be remember those around us who yet know need to know the Savior. You are remembered as you ride out your storm. Let us pray. Lord, bless this congregation. Bless us as we go into service this week, many of us. Lift up the prayers of your saints for safety, for weather. But I lift up prayers right now for these saints, that they would know that they have relation with you, that you are bringing jobs, you are bringing relationships, you are bringing life and light into their existence. And you are the one who is directly concerned about them and has sent the Holy Spirit to come alongside them and to care for them and to help them. Oh, bless us, Lord. Thank you for remembering us. In Jesus' name.